to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 7 verses 21 and following this morning. Wow, we've arrived at a special place, you probably don't realize that, but we're at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is it. This morning, unless the rapture happens first, then by the grace of God, we're going to finish the Sermon on the Mount. And it's really, it's been quite a journey. It started almost a year ago. The first message on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, was November 6th of 2011. So we're just about a year to finish this tremendous section of Matthew's Gospel. It has been spiritually rich, it has been personally challenging for me to work through it, and I trust that the Spirit of God has used His Word at some point along the way in your life as we have worked through this tremendous section together. What I want to do before we jump into the final part of the message is to review chapters 5, 6, and 7 together, just to get the the grand scenery, as it were, of this tremendous sermon one more time in our mind before we come to the finish line. So that's what we'll do here for a few minutes this morning. And uh, when we began this about a year ago, our first message was an overview of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And as part of that message, we talked about the the various ways that this section of Matthew's gospel has been interpreted throughout the centuries of the church. And you could go back to that sermon and you could check that out on your own. It is on our website. But I'm not going to go back through all of that other than to tell you that we concluded from that that the the best approach to this sermon is what is called the interim approach. The interim approach. And what that basically means is that Jesus delivered this sermon to his disciples, to a a larger group of people who were nominally his disciples, and to a much larger group than that called the crowds, so there were sort of three rings of listeners. He delivered this message to the nation in preparation for them to receive the messianic kingdom to get them ready for the kingdom of heaven. It is exceedingly clear that, as Matthew presents this to us, that that the kingdom is being offered to the nation. You can just peek back at chapter 4 and verse 17, where Matthew records that for us. And it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the nation is being offered their messianic kingdom, but, but how are they to prepare themselves to receive it? That's really the question. How can they re- get their hearts ready to receive this kingdom? How can they bring forth the fruit that John the Baptist is calling for back in chapter 3 and verse 8 where he says, bring, uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, addressed there, of course, to the religious leaders of the nation, but through them to the nation as a whole. How can they do that? How can they be ready for Messiah? What do they have to do? What will it look like to be ready for Jesus? 
So in a very, very real sense, this sermon is not addressed to you and me. It was addressed in a historical context to a, to a group of people that lived almost 2,000 years ago. Having said that, it is the Word of God. It is Scripture. And Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, because it is Scripture, it is profitable to you and I. Paul writes there that, that all Scripture is right, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So, so this sermon has definite application to us, but it was not addressed to us. It was addressed to, a, to the nation of Israel in order to prepare them, help them prepare themselves to receive their king, their, their Messiah. So as we have gone through the sermon together, we have learned a lot. There's a lot that, that we have learned and can learn from this, service, this uh, sermon, and there's, and there's much that we can apply to our lives. And I trust by the Spirit of God that these last year, you have been applying the Word of God to your lives. Specifically, Jesus sets out here for us what it means to be a disciple. What it means to be a disciple. So let's take a look at that. Remembering the end of Matthew's gospel, it it concludes in chapter 28 with verses 19 and 20 with what we know as the Great Commission. That we are to go into the world and to do what? Make disciples, right? We're to make disciples of the nations. So if we're to make disciples of the nations, then then we ought to know what a disciple looks like. How a disciple acts. What a disciple values. What a disciple rejects. What characterizes the life of a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. And although Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 is not the entire picture, it is a very significant picture of what it means to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus Christ. So let's just take a peek at some of the things that Jesus has has talked about over the last year. He begins with what we call the Beatitudes in chapter 5, beginning in verse 3 and running all the way to verse 12. And we looked at those in each one separately, a single message on each one. They were the characteristics, we called, of a disciple. They were grace-motivated characteristics of a follower of Jesus Christ. And here they were. Verse 3, it was humility. Humility is to characterize a disciple of Christ. Verse 4, repentance. Repentance. A disciple of Christ is a repentant person. Verse 5, gentleness. A follower of Jesus Christ is gentle. Verse 6, a follower of Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ, is famished for righteousness. They cannot get enough of it. Chapter 5 and verse 7, the disciple of Jesus is compassionate. Verse 8, holy. Verse 9, a peacemaker. A peacemaker. They are a fire retardant. And then... Verses 10 through 12, the follower of Jesus Christ, we said, is uncompromising. In the face of persecution and adversity, the follower of Jesus Christ is uncompromising because to compromise would be to turn away from the path of life. They are uncompromising. We have said further that that the disciple of Jesus Christ is one who lives in the present by the values of the future. 
They live in the present by the values of the future. That is the values of that future kingdom. Their hope doesn't lie here. Their hope lies there in that coming kingdom. And that changes the where and the how and the why of what they do. So, verses 13 through 16... That makes the disciple of Jesus Christ one who acts as a a moral disinfectant, a moral disinfectant, and a spiritual light in in a dark and decaying world. Jesus says, you are the salt, right? You are the light. You are the moral disinfectant. You are the spiritual light because you are living in the present by the values of the future. Beyond that, Jesus says... In, uh, in verses 21 and following to the end of chapter 5, that the disciple of Jesus Christ rejects the idea that God's law can be fulfilled in a merely external way. That the law of God is, is all about behaviors. They reject that. That you cannot merely conform to external standards and live a life pleasing to God. It is deeper than that. The followers of Jesus Christ, the disciples of Jesus Christ, recognize that the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. That it's how we respond in the secret places that really betray or reveal our true allegiances. And Jesus lays out for us a number of specific examples of the difference between one focused on external righteousness and one who understands that true righteousness arises from within the heart by the grace of God. So we looked at things like murder. We looked at adultery. We looked at divorce. We looked at swearing oaths. We looked at the issue of personal retaliation, and we looked at the requirement for love. Verses 21 through 48 of chapter 5. That it's about the inside, not just the outside. Finally, chapter 6, Jesus tells us that the disciples are to engage in, in a religious devotion that seeks God's approval and not man's. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 and running all the way through verse 18, it's not about the external approval of men in the practice of our religion. It is God who is our audience. We have an audience of one. Furthermore, Jesus says that is that because we are living in the present with the values of the future, that we are to reject certain things that that characterize those who are living in the present with the values of the present. And we are to to reject, he says, beginning in verse 19 of chapter 6, we are to reject the world's approach to wealth. We are to reject the world's approach to wealth. We are also to reject the world's approach to worry beginning in verse 25. And finally, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, we're to reject the world's approach to judgment. We're to reject the world's approach to judgment. So this is in many, many facets of the the human life that Jesus 
takes and, and stops and pauses and, and exposits, really, the Old Testament law to tell us what it really means. And the, and the theme of all of this is, is that these are to be grace-motivated characteristics of those who are followers of Christ. This is not things that we can do on our own. This is not something we work up from our own you know, internal force of character. It is to rely upon the grace of God to place within us the desire to do these things and the motivation to do these things and the ability to do these things, to live in a very different way than the rest of the world. We see Jesus as Savior. We see Jesus as Lord. And there is a desire, a very intense desire within our heart to to follow Him as a disciple, as a learner, to emulate Him. Jesus says that these are the characteristics of those who will be granted admission to the kingdom. He says back in chapter 5 and in verse 20, it's a key verse. I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. When it comes to an external righteousness, when it comes to a religious devotion, none can exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the masters. And Jesus said, listen, if that's, if that's your understanding of righteousness, if that's what you're after, you've got to do a lot better than that or you will never see the kingdom. Well, what's better than that? Well, Jesus spelled it out for us there in chapters 5, 6 and the early part of 7. If you want admittance to the kingdom, then you need to live with an internal righteousness. A grace-motivated, grace-empowered, grace-driven internal righteousness. How steep is the standard, by the way? Chapter 5, verse 48 makes it clear. The standard is perfection. We are obligated to live perfectly in this way. No, we don't. We fall short constantly. We are constantly falling short. And that's why it is important for us to to have a daily cleansing and forgiveness. Chapter 6, verse 12. Forgive us our debts is to be our regular prayer. We are to call upon God to forgive us, recognizing that even though we are not who we once were, we are not who we need to be. We are in process of becoming disciples of Christ. And we fall short, and we need to be cleansed, and we need to be forgiven, and we need what only God can provide, relief for our soul. Jesus goes on here in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and he says, this is the narrow gate. This is the narrow way. This is what what entrance into the kingdom is all about. There's another way. It's broad, it's wide, 
many, many find it. It appears to, to offer what you desire, which is entrance into the kingdom, but, but it doesn't make the same kind of, of requirements upon you. It doesn't, it doesn't mandate the same kinds of changes. You can still hang on to the old life. But it's all an illusion. It's a dreadful illusion. It's a disastrous illusion. Because at the end of the line... Even though there's a big sign over the gate, this way to the kingdom, the end of the line is a cliff that will plunge you into ruin. Many find the broad road that ends in destruction. Few, Jesus says, find that narrow path that leads to life. He goes on to warn us, verses 15 and following, about the dangers of the false prophets and Today, false teachers who would, who would seek to seduce us from the narrow path and tell us that, you know what, it's really, really not that narrow. You don't really, really have to, to live that way. There's a, there's, a, there's a wideness here that you can just sort of carry your stuff along with you and God will understand. Jesus says, beware. Beware of those kind of wolves or they will consume you. They will consume you. Not only do we need to be aware of that, we need to be aware of what is going to occupy us in the final part of this sermon, and that's the danger of false assurance. This is the final admonition of the sermon, false assurance. It's a very dangerous thing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, he writes there to the church, test yourselves. To see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. Unless you fail the test. I want to do everything in my power to make sure that none of you fail the test. And so what I want to do is, is, is to warn you this morning. I must warn you. I must warn you this morning about the catastrophe of self-deception. That's really what this is all about. The catastrophe of self-deception. Self-deception can take many, many forms. But I just want to focus on one, and, and that's the Scriptures. When the Scriptures speak about self-deception, they most often speak about it as a portrayal of a certain kind of delusion. It is the delusion that belief and behavior are unrelated. It is the delusion that belief and behavior are unrelated. It is a catastrophe. That kind of delusion teaches, in other words, this false idea that we are saved by a profession of faith. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are saved by the possession of faith. It is the possession of faith. And it is a real faith that plays itself out day to day as we live our lives in submission under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It is a faith that shows itself in behaviors 
and heart attitudes and thinking processes and the way we speak and, and in so many things. If we have experienced the saving grace of God in Christ, it transforms us. It transforms us. Jesus gives us this morning two important statements, really, regarding the necessity of of faith and obedience being linked together. The first one I want to look at is with you here in verses 21 to 23. It's the, the delusion of what I'm calling substitutionary obedience. The delusion of substitutionary obedience. See, there's a linkage of faith and obedience, but it has to be the right kind of obedience too. So we have an illustration here of, of this, this really, really shocking passage, actually. Beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Notice in verse 21, by the way, the word says and the word does. That's kind of the idea that is going to flow through this whole passage. Says and does. Many, verse 22, will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I think this has to be one of the most shocking statements, maybe the most shocking statement in a sermon that is full of shocking statements. Jesus says here that that not only will the narrow gate exclude the many who have no interest, it will also exclude In the end, a great many who claimed to be his disciples. You see that? Take a look again at at verse 22. Many will say to me. Not just a few. Many who think they are on the narrow road will find out in the end that they were not. Very shocking. Very, very sobering. This statement, Lord, Lord, is not a statement of of a polite address. It It is a statement of deity. It is a statement of deity. These people believe that Jesus is the divine Messiah. They're orthodox in their theology. Beyond that, they are apparently active in his service. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did did we not cast out demons and and in your name perform many miracles? Orthodox in their profession, active in their service, 
And yet the evaluation of their inner character reveals the fact that they were never disciples of Christ. Never followers of Jesus. They lived their lives in opposition to the Father's will. Many will say to me, verse 22, on that day, a couple things here just to understand. Jesus is, is claiming here to be the one that adjudicates entrance into the kingdom. This is a direct claim to deity. Those that say Jesus never claimed to be God, oh, could not differ with you more. Here's one. He says that, that I control, and by the way, you see it on that day? You see that expression, on that day? That, that's, a, that's virtually a technical expression for the day of the Lord. It is, it is speaking of that great day of judgment. On that great day of judgment, many will say to me, you got to remember, this is a man talking, right? They will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You are banished. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, enters the kingdom. Notice in verse 22, the use of Lord, Lord again. It's really interesting here. Verse 21, it is a confession of Jesus' deity. Verse 22, it's, it's like an expression of desperation. They'll, they'll say to me, but Lord, Lord, and start recounting their lives. We, we, did, we did these things, and we, and we did them in your name. That's, a, that's our evidence. In your name, done in the name of God, is, is the idea of in submission to the authority of God. That's what name carries with it. And by the way, the Greek construction here is that there is a positive response expected to all of these questions. Jesus' response here is not, no, you didn't, no, you didn't, no, you didn't. It's yes, yes, and yes. But it's not enough. It's not enough. Their claims are not false. Their claims are insignificant. Insufficient. Supernatural phenomena is never the determining factor in whether a person has divine approval or not. Mark that down. Supernatural phenomena is never the determining factor in whether one has divine approval or not. Nor, by the way, is ministry involvement. The determining factor is doing the Father's will. Doing the Father's will. I don't want you to miss this contrast here. It's between those who who regularly do the Father's will, verse 21 present participle, they are regularly doing the Father's will, 
And those, verse 23, instead, who regularly engage, it says practice, it's the same idea, it's a, it's a present middle participle, it's an ongoing action, a pattern of lawlessness. The contrast is between those whose lives are characterized by doing the Father's will and those whose lives are characterized by doing that which is in opposition to the Father's will. It's a very strong contrast. Do you ever notice, by the way, that the the Scriptures just do that? They, They draw the line sharp and they push the sides apart. You know, they cut it in half and push it far apart. God God wants to make it really, really clear to His people that you can't straddle the line. You are in the light or you are in the what? Darkness. You are a child of God or you are a child of Satan. You are either doing the Father's will or you are practicing lawlessness. There's no in-between ground. There's no middle ground. There's no fence to straddle. You are in or you are out. You are a disciple or you are not. And as the old Baptist preacher said to me when I was a young man, you're a saint or you ain't. And it's stuck. It's stuck. What is lawlessness, verse 23, in this context? I think we ought to ask that question, don't you? I mean, it's, the, it's really the key. What's going on here? You who practice lawlessness. What is lawlessness? Well, fundamentally, lawlessness is, is a basic rejection of the law of God. That's lawlessness. But it has a, it has a specific context in which this, these statements occur here, and, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount, right? And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is explaining and applying the Old Testament law. Go back to chapter 5, verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is not given to replace the law. This is the interim approach, right? This is for the nation to prepare itself to receive her king. They are still under the Mosaic Covenant at this point. So when Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, he is not setting aside the law of Moses. No, what he is doing is he is expositing the law of Moses. He is is explaining the law of Moses. He is teaching the true intent of the law of Moses. And my friends, the, the, the intent of the law of Moses remains the intent of God even to this day. The outward manifestations have changed. Old covenants anew. But the intent of the heart of God has never changed in how he understands righteousness. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
These are false disciples. These are false disciples. These are, these are vocal followers of Jesus engaged in, in supernatural displays of power, but by their continual refusal to live according to the law of God, and in context here you have to understand it as the law of God as exposited by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, they reveal themselves to be those who were never his children to begin with. Their refusal to live in faith, according to the Sermon on the Mount, tells us that they are actually deceived. And you, you know, what a terrible tragedy that is. I mean, you see that tragedy? Verse 22. On that day, at the end, that means when it's too late to do anything about it. They think they are on the narrow path, and in the end, they find out they're not. And the reason is, is because they have attempted, they have been deceived, they have attempted to live for Jesus without submitting to Jesus. Faith without works is dead. They have attempted to substitute ministry for obedience. They have attempted to substitute ministry for obedience. They're like a child. Well, mom says, uh, go in there and clean your room. And an hour later, you come in, and instead of cleaning the room, the child says, I memorized my one verses. I memorized my one verses. I told you to clean the room. You would no more accept that substituted obedience from your children than God will accept it from you. This is no small matter. God is concerned with your private piety, not with your public performance. Can I say that? God is concerned with your private piety, not with your public performance. He's concerned with what's going on inside that necessarily manifests itself in what goes on outside. The delusion of substitutionary obedience. Secondly, Jesus deals with what I call the parable of the two foundations. The parable of the two foundations. This is the first parable, really, that we're encountering. We're going to encounter many more. So you're going to hear me say this many more times. But let's just start here and tell you this, that, that parables have one point. Okay, Parables are designed to teach one point. This parable has one point. It is a parable told at the very end of the sermon. It is the last words of Jesus in this sermon. And the point of this parable is that he is calling the audience to make a decision to follow him or not. 
That's the point of the parable. Let's read it. Therefore, we'll get to that in a minute. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, by the way, in the margin of your NASB, it probably says does, which is what the literal word is. Hears and does, does that stick in your mind anywhere? It ought to. 21, verse 21, says and does. Same kind of contrast going on. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them or act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. In this parable we have two houses and they are outwardly identical. We have two outwardly identical houses. They represent a person's religious life. We also have the same storm assaulting both houses. One collapses in utter ruin, one stands firm. Now, the storm here that assaults the homes, is not the trials of life. It is not the storms of life. Okay, that is, a, that is a popular notion among some, but it's not correct. The storm being spoken of here is the storm of eschatological judgment. It is the, it is the final judgment. It is the in-that-day judgment that Jesus is talking about. For example, Jeremiah chapter 23, and there are a number of places in the Old Testament that use the, 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 the idea of a storm to speak of the judgment of God. Jeremiah 23, just don't turn the other, just let me read it to you, verses 19 and 20. Behold, the prophet writes, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath, even a whirling, even a whirling tempest. It will swirl down on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. In the last days you will clearly understand it. Jeremiah 23, 19 and 20. This is not speaking about the difficulties of life and, and how one who is a follower of Jesus Christ can somehow get through the difficulties of life and a person who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, when life's difficulties come to them, they sort of fall apart and collapse. That may be very true. But that's not taught here. It's not taught here. And by the way, if we don't get the right interpretation of the Scripture, we don't have the Scripture. Jesus is still on point. And the point is, there is a judgment coming. And when you get to the judgment, you're going to be evaluated upon, what did you do with me and my words? Therefore, verse 24, when you see the therefore, you ask yourself, what's it there for? It's following in the context of verses 21 to 23. 21 to 23 is speaking about judgment. 
This is a judgment scene. Furthermore, these words of mine equate to the rock. The rock is not Jesus. The rock is these words of mine. Now, we've got lots of really great songs about Jesus is the rock and so forth, and that's, that's all good. It is not right from here. These words of mine are the rock. And they also directly relate to, in the prior section, verses 21 to 23, the will of the Father. The will of the Father, these words of mine, the rock. They are all speaking of the same thing. In context, they're speaking about the Sermon on the Mount. They're speaking about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' exposition of the true meaning and intent of the law. The sand, just to finish this out, the sand is a religious life built on the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. It looks good on the outside, but at the final judgment, when the storm arrives, it'll prove to be a foolish place to build a life, and it will collapse into utter ruin. This parable is aimed at, at those who have heard the Sermon on the Mount. Right? It's, it's, this is the last thing he's, he's drawing his sermon to a conclusion. And so he is aiming it at his audience. I told you when we began here, I reminded you. In fact, go ahead and uh, you can see it in Luke chapter 6, verse 17. You don't have to keep taking my word for things. If I took you to every passage to prove every point I make, we definitely wouldn't finish today. And I'm determined to finish today. Luke 6, 17, speaking of the same event, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus came down with them, that is his his 12 that he had just chosen, and he stood on a level place and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. It's this gigantic audience. I told you it was in circles, right? It's the 12, it's the larger group of, of disciples, many of whom will fall away according to John 6. When Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And then it is the the large crowds that are along because this guy is a good show. Jesus is aiming it at them. He's drawing this whole thing to a conclusion. And And he is calling upon them for a decision. I mean, intellectually, they they may be willing to agree with what he is asserting, but they are still hanging on to the old way. They are still seeking to build their religious edifice, their life, upon the old way, the scribes and the Pharisees. It's a system in which they've been brought up. Jesus says it's time to decide. Will you be hearers of the word or doers of the word? Twice in Luke's gospel, Jesus explicitly ties blessings to both hearing and heeding the word of God. For example, Luke chapter 8. Luke 8, verses 20 21. 
I'll pick it up in 19. And his mother and brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are out, standing outside, wishing to see you. But he answered, verse 21, and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Not my blood relations, those who hear and heed what I have to say. They are my true relations. Chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Verse 27, 28. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Blessed is your mother who brought you into this world. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Yes, my mother is blessed for having brought me into the world. But those who hear my word and keep it are equally blessed. Now, you may think at first glance, I don't have to worry about this too much. I mean, it's not likely I'm going to fall into the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, right? I mean, those guys have been dead for, like, forever. You know, right? They destroyed the temple in 70 AD, and they're all gone. I'm safe. No. Actually, you're not safe. You're not safe at all because because that which was the underpinnings of the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees is very much alive today. Very much alive. It is a religion that, that basically is built on a religious charade. A religious charade. And it's, and it's undergirded by a, by a works-based system of righteousness. And that's very prevalent today. They look really good on the outside. And on the inside, it's all messed up. How easy, how, how deceptive it is to, to just attend church. All right, hey, the doors are open, I'm here. To attend church, to to listen to the sermons, even take notes. Go online and catch them when you miss them. Affirm the theology, right? Oh, yeah, I love doctrine, theology. Go for it. Preach it. And your life is a mess. Your life is a mess. It's, It's characterized by hypocrisy. It's characterized by pride. It's characterized by jealousy. It's characterized by worry, by fear, by worldliness. Now, we could go on and on. All the things that Jesus confronts, right? There's no humility. There's no, there's no famished for righteousness in your life. I mean, you open your Bible, like whatever. I mean, where, where, where's the passion in your heart? Looks good on the outside. Sunday morning Christian, right? On the inside. It's all messed up. 
that we can easily fall into this. Building a very nice spiritual house. Well painted, curb appeal, you know, the whole deal. And inside, there's nothing. The foundation is sand. Hey, listen, people, people listen to all kinds of preachers. You know, we live in the Internet age, right? You can listen to all kinds of preaching. And you can become a, a professional taste tester. Did you know that? Professional taste tester. Years ago, many, many, more than decades, several decades. I, I, anyway, I had an opportunity to meet this guy who worked for a, for a major coffee company in America. And he had this job, and it was really kind of a cool job. His job was to taste coffee, sip it, and then spit it out, wash out his mouth, and taste another sip. And based on what his taste buds determined, that was how the coffee was graded. This is back in 1983, I believe, and he made $50,000 a year. Now, in 1983, 50 grand was a lot of money to sip coffee. It's a coffee taster. People, people are sermon tasters. Here, there, you know, I listen to this guy and that guy and that guy. Pastor, did you, did you hear what so-and-so said? Did you hear oh, what so-and-so said? No. <laughs> Actually, I haven't. But is it getting inside you? Is it, is it doing anything? Or are you like the people I see at Costco? You know what I'm talking about. They walk up and down the aisles, sampling the wares. And they never buy anything. Uh, they'll even, uh, I'll walk behind them and they'll, they'll be talking to each other. Wow, that was tremendous. Wasn't that good? D- are you going to buy it? <laughs> now I'll be back next week and have another bite, you know. They just nibble. They nibble. They never take the plunge. They never purchase the product. See, you can be like that when it comes to, to, to Christ, to what He had to say. And, and what He has to say here, let's just keep it here. Matthew chapters 5, 6, 7. Let's stay here. You can, you can nibble away and never consume, never, never buy in, never change. How great was its fall, he says. What a catastrophe to arrive at the end. And the whole enterprise of your life collapses. Well, how do the people respond? How do they respond to Jesus' sermon here? Verses 28 and 29, right? When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at His teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. 
They're blown away. I have never heard a sermon like that, they say. This man teaches with authority. I've never heard content like that. I've never heard it delivered like that, but it's more than that. They're amazed by the, by the reality that, that he doesn't speak by any kind of derived authority. He doesn't cite any other rabbis. He doesn't cite the scribes. He speaks in the first person. He's not a prophet who says, thus says the Lord. He says, I say to you. He's God himself. Authoritatively interpreting and applying the very word of God. It is his word. It is his word. He reveals the will of the Father. He's the one who adjudicates who comes into the kingdom and who does not come into the kingdom. It all resides with him. What will you do with Jesus is the question. This crowd remains unmoved. You fast forward a few chapters to chapter 11 and and he begins to, to call down woes upon the cities in which he has spent the majority of his time here in Galilee. He says, if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen and heard what you have seen and heard, they would have repented. Beloved, listen. You have seen and heard. You have seen and heard. What will you do with Jesus? What is your response to the Sermon on the Mount? Said another way, what road are you on? What road are you on? Hmm? It's the difference between life and death. If you're not sure, you come and you talk to me here in just a minute. Let us open the scriptures together and let us be sure together that you know the Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it confronts us because that is the loving thing to do. To leave us in our sin Deceived and confused and foolishly thinking that everything is okay is not love, but hatred. And so, our Father, you have confronted us through your word these past months and even this morning. And you are calling us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. A real faith. An active faith. A living faith. Pour out your mercy and grace upon us. May you save today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, beloved.